But what we're going to talk about this morning, I would count among the most important things we have ever studied. Now, my wife will tell you I say that every Sunday. But it's absolutely true. The passage we'll look at this morning in Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most quoted, it's one of the most often referred to, and I think in many cases, one of the most misunderstood. And the impact for us personally and as a fellowship of believers is uh, beyond description. I want to begin by giving you kind of an outline for Paul's letter to Philippi. It's just four chapters, so you almost don't need one. It goes by so quickly, and we're going to be through in two or three weeks and then on to the next letter. But as long as we're here, uh, a four-part outline for four chapters, each chapter being a part of that outline, and if you're a note-taker, you can jot this down or be aware of it. Chapter one is living Christ. Living Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that is, I believe, the key verse of the entire letter. That is the hinge point. That's the focus. And more on that in a minute. Chapter 1 is living Christ. Chapter 2 gets into the Lordship of Christ. And we'll talk about that some this morning. Chapter 3, loss for Christ. And then finally, chapter 4, learning Christ. So living, lordship, loss, and learning, that's what we'll go through in this joyful letter that Paul wrote to his dear friends at Philippi. We opened up last week and talked about that. Paul is not just writing to another church, not just writing a doctrinal treatment followed by a practical application. He's writing a friendship letter to this people who he has deep affection for truly cares for. It's a joyful letter, that word joy used multiple times and rejoice throughout the book, again, as we've already looked at and discussed together. But now as we open up chapter 2, Paul begins to share some things that are, again, absolutely vital to anyone who would make a decision to live Christ. In verse 1, he writes, Therefore, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, these are profound words, powerful in their import, and so important for us to understand. And so, Father, as we prayed revelation for our children, I pray revelation for each and every one of us sitting in here this morning. Every pair of ears listening, may we have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. 
May we have, Father, the boldness and the willingness to take this in and live it out. I pray, Father, for Your Spirit to do a work among us, even this morning, to flip a switch, as it were, to do what is necessary to draw us near to Jesus and make us Christ-like. And Father, for anyone who's here not in a state of belief, perhaps uncertain or, or questioning Jesus, I pray that some realities will hit home today. Realities that will birth faith. And help us all to hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a phrase that actually was first put into print in 1900. Uh, 50 years later, it began to be popularized. About 1952. In fact, the first time we see it in this particular context that I'm going to share with you, it was on Friday, June the 6th, 1952, that this phrase again appeared in print. But this time, for the first time, spoken by none other than Charlie Brown. Charles M. Schultz, in his famous Peanuts comic strip, put this out in the newspaper on that day, on that Friday in 1952. And I actually have the comic in my notes because I I love Peanuts and it just cracks me up to sit here and look at it. But you see a picture of Charlie Brown sitting there reading a book. And Lucy comes up kind of behind him and Charlie Brown's distracted by his reading and he's not paying attention. And Lucy said, would you like to have a great big bug, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown, without looking up, says, I guess it would be all right. Lucy then tosses an insect into his lap. Charlie Brown sees the bug, throws the book in the air, flips upside down, saying, yeah! And then he says, good grief! Good grief, Lucy! I thought you said hug! (laughs) It's like a big bug, Charlie Brown. Good grief. That phrase became so popular in American slang, I remember using it as a kid. You know, many of us would say, good grief. Some people still today, you will hear people say, good grief. And the question I have for you this morning is, is there such a thing? Is there good grief? See, the Apostle Paul would not only say there's good grief, he would go further to say there is good grief given by God. That God literally offers you grief as a gift. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. Listen to this. For to you, Paul writes, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict, that word conflict is agonia, agony. The same agony which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Suffering, agony, conflict. And Paul says, it's been granted to you. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is praying that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul says, that gift has been granted to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. What gift? Grief. Good grief. Good suffering. Good agony, good sorrow. This is a gift from God? The word granted there in verse 29 is karizomai. It comes from the word charis, which is grace. God has graciously given this, Paul says to his friends, joyfully at Philippi. 
God has graciously given you suffering. He has bestowed agony. He has imparted grief. Charlie Brown would say, good grief, and there is good grief. Paul writes, understand this, let's not sugarcoat it, there is good grief in the opposition that comes to those who choose to live Christ. You will be granted suffering. (laughs) You'll be granted hard times. You'll be given difficulties. I mean, what kind of evangelical outreach comment is that? Rick, I brought a friend this morning. This is not a good direction to be going. God has granted you to suffer, Paul says. Hey, it wasn't a big deal to Paul. He didn't have an issue with suffering. He invited it because as he says in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if that involves suffering or hardship or difficulty or pain, bring it on, man, because it's all Jesus. To live is Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.13, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the world doesn't get this. Outside of faith in Christ, this sounds kind of ludicrous. Sounds like one of those stupid Christian tricks, to be honest. I read a blogger recently, and I tried to go back and find it so I could reference it for you, and I couldn't find it. But just in in a search I was doing for something unrelated, I ran across this blog where the guy was criticizing Christians for having a martyrdom mindset. He was really opposing, going after, in conflict with, ironically, Christians. Just saying it is bizarre to encourage people to suffer. You Christians are so strange that way. It doesn't make any sense. He misunderstands the point of suffering for Jesus. So do we, by the way. We joke about it from time to time. I I talk about my my friends who are heading out to live in Hawaii for the next two months, and I think, oh, going to suffer for Jesus. And yet there is, right? There is suffering for Jesus. Now, if you're a believer very long in your life, you will at some point recognize that quickly. You will see opposition. You will take on sorrow simply because you said Jesus' name. Someone's going to go after you for it. It, It's strange how it works that way. That someone just claims to be a Christian and gets hammered because they're a Christian. It's the only religion that I see that way with the exception of Judaism. And yet people will come at Christians and Christians then have to respond. What do I do? How how do I relate to this? And what the Apostle says, hey, it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. That's a good thing. The blogger who would call us inane in our thinking misses the point. There is inherent opposition to living Christ. But there is also a great joy in that opposition. There is a great joy. There is a deep comfort in the conflict. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You know you can't out-suffer His comfort? That all the sufferings in the world that fall on someone, the comfort of God is there to increase even beyond that? 
And so the Lord graciously grants good grief to the person who suffers for Christ's sake. Now, if you bring grief on yourself just because you're being dumb, that doesn't count. Okay? If you're out there sinning and you get in trouble for it, well, that's on you. But we are granted, it's been granted that we might suffer for Christ's sake. And I begin with that this morning because that's what the therefore is there for. And we have to start with that because chapter 2 begins with therefore. So get in this whole flow this morning and you've got to follow the flow to get everything here. The context is Paul is talking as he's kind of in this Pauline stream of consciousness. The context is, is, is that Philippi, you're suffering and you're going to suffer and it's been given to you to do so. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. Therefore, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and Compassion. Now, I've got to pause there because the next four verses are one long run-on sentence. We've seen this before. This is what Paul does. He gives these Pauline run-ons. But in this first verse, what he's saying is if there are any of these things, since there's already suffering, since you already know conflict, you've already experienced pain because you follow Jesus, look around, he says. Look around in your fellowship. He would say to Philippi, I believe we would hear from him this morning. The Spirit would say to us this morning, Do you see any of these things around you? That is, encouragement in Christ. Consolation of love. Fellowship in the Spirit. Affection, compassion. Is there any of that? Do you see any of that? If any of these things are here... Paul is laying out a, an if-then statement. It's called a protasis and an apodosis. And the protasis is four if clauses. I know there are five different words there in verse 1, but it's really four clauses that he uses. I'll explain. And then he follows it up by a, an even greater explanation, a then clause. If this, then this. If, therefore, he says, if... There is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion. Now something I have learned to do in studying the Bible is to look carefully, I think you know this if you've been here, to look carefully at the words. There are five words here that he gives, but there are only four clauses. And these words are vital to our understanding, to to seeing what Paul is getting at. Now even though he says, if there is any of these things... He says, if, expecting that in fact there are. Okay, if there's a positive expectation that they communally transpire, that is, encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and compassion, that they do transpire in the community of believers, and that they are commonly desired. In looking at these words, are there any of these things that you don't want? I think everybody wants a little encouragement from time to time. Everybody could use some consolation or comfort. Everyone wants fellowship. Everyone wants affection and compassion. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus for every one of these words to apply. I want this stuff. I'm looking for this in my life. All of these things together. But these five words, four clauses, they are so rich with meaning. As with all of Scripture. I told you before that every single word I believe in the Bible is there on purpose. 
It is all intentional. It is all thought through. It's not like us, you know, how we fire off letters or texts and we're not really thinking we just need to get some information out to someone or we want to share a thought. It's like, have you ever sent a text message off and it auto-corrected right at the last minute and you hit send and went, oh no, 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 no. Because you saw what the auto-correct was and it wasn't good. I don't know where my little smartphone gets its ideas. It's kind of like about a month ago, I signed a Mother's Day card for my mom, and uh, I thought I'd be clever. You know, I sat down with a really nice card. Cheryl picked it up at the store, and I sit down there with my pen, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be clever. I'm going to come up with something fun for Mother's Day, and I started to write, roses are red, violets aren't yellow, and I was stuck. Where do I go with this? I I was horrified when I saw myself writing, but we're thinking of you, this gal and this fellow. Oh, no! I said, Cheryl, what do I do? It's stupid. And she said, it's all right, your mom knows. So we sent it out that way. Good grief. (laughs) The Word of God is never autocorrected. The Word of God never was penned by Paul or any of the prophets or apostles and just sent out that way. Oops, oh well, they'll get it. Every word in Scripture is absolutely intentional. God says, my word which goes forth from my mouth does not come back to me empty. So he's thinking about what he's writing. We need to be thinking about what we're reading. And so I pause on these things because even in this personal letter, every one of these words carries a divine weight of meaning. A distinct weight. Encouragement in Christ is the first clause. And encouragement is that word paraklesis. You may be familiar with it. It's like parakletos. That's the word we use to describe, Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. Parakletos, the comforter, the helper, one who comes alongside. And so Paul says, if there is any coming alongside each other in Christ. And then he says, if there is any consolation of love, consolation is the word paramuthion, which is spoken comfort. Spoken comfort. It's, It's tenderness of speech. Spoken one to another. Is there any consolation of love, he says? And then if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, well, fellowship is a well-known word in the church. It's koinonia. It's that which makes us unique. It's the one-anotherness of a church fellowship. Something beyond ourselves, even beyond affinity, beyond likes and interests, something that draws us together, and it is the fellowship of the Spirit, that communion that's so precious in fellowships of believers. But what's interesting to me in these first three clauses is Paul is being completely uh, Trinitarian. That is, he just described the Trinity. Look again. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, Christ and the Spirit, that makes sense. But that middle one, wait a minute, I see Son, I see encouragement in Christ, I see the Holy Spirit, fellowship of the Spirit, but then I just see consolation of love. Are you saying that that is God the Father? That's exactly what Paul is saying. And I'm convinced of it. That Paul is painting a picture of the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Because the consolation of love, that is the spoken tenderness of love, that flows from the Father. God is love, the Bible tells us. So when you see the consolation of love, you're hearing about what comes from the Father's heart. The Trinity as described throughout Scripture, and it is described multiple times, and it is an unquestionable description of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see it over and over and over in the Bible. Well, I don't understand it. It doesn't matter if you understand it. It's there, baby. But as we look at it, sometimes people think, oh yeah, the sweet Holy Spirit and, and the cool Jesus and the harsh exacting Father. And I would say that is a wrong understanding of God. Because God is love. He is the perfect Father. He is the Father that I would aspire to be like where my own children are concerned. A Father who knows love, who shares love, who gives love. That is His nature. And everything God has ever done in history, and by the way, everything He's ever done in your life, He has done for the sake of love. He has done it because He loves you. Well, I don't understand this. Children often don't, do they? I've had to make many decisions for my kids that they have not understood from a position of love. God is love. And so I believe in these first three clauses we have a divine picture, a picture of Christ, of the Father of love, and of the fellowship of the Spirit, the Trinity, right there, all three together. Now, Paul has done this before. In fact, a comparative passage to verse 1 of Philippians 2 is... 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, where Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Christ is, or Paul has spoken this way before in describing the Trinity. It just finds its way into so many different things that the Apostle says as we see it throughout the Word of God. So, the first three clauses are divine. The last clause is two words. But it's a single clause, and that is affection and compassion. And while the first three are divine, the last two are very human. It's a picture, really, of the church. The divine presence of God that we see in encouragement and consolation and fellowship, that's all God among us. But then we also see the affection and compassion that is a human element within any fellowship of believers. And I love the words for affection and compassion. Affection is splachnon, which is a great Greek word. It's one of my favorites. I've used it before, and it means literally guts or bowels. Splachnon. Got a little tummy ache, you can say, my splachnon's bugging me today. Got a little splachnon issue going on. You know, if you heard me gurgling in the, in the seats next to you, it's someone's splachnon's going off, okay? Hopefully not to a greater degree, but just that's what it is. Splachnon, guts, bowels, it is that seat of, of affection. It's often translated compassion, but, but the other word is translated compassion here, so they had to go with affection, but it's that really, it's felt. It's compassion felt. Splachnon is what Jesus felt when he saw the people who were as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. He felt them in his guts. And so Paul's describing this as an actual characteristic of a fellowship of believers. We have this gut-level feeling one for another. Combined with affection, and affection is the word oiktermas, which is sympathetic, even tearful kindness. Put them together, this clause literally is gutsy kindness. Do you have that? Do you have gutsy kindness for other people in 
the fellowship to the point that you feel what they're feeling. It's a deep, felt, in, uh, intimate empathy. You know, that we, we look at each other and someone's hurt and man, I just, it makes me hurt. Someone's honored and I, and I feel honored with them. Then we read that in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's a body picture in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a body picture here. If I cut my finger open, my feet are running to get me some healing. And my feet have nothing to do with my finger except that we are all members of the same body. And so when this is suffering, my whole body feels that, shares in that. And Paul says that's a description of a church fellowship. The divine presence of God encouraging and comforting and developing deeper fellowship and the very human element of affection and compassion. And if all of that is there, and Paul would say, and I think it is, then, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's not talking about us becoming lockstepping robots. He's not saying we're all to be exactly the same, following and behaving and looking like everybody else. What I love about this fellowship is how different we all are. How unique you are. I mean, I'm looking at you right now going, you don't even dress the same. You don't look the same. You don't act the same. That's a good thing. Because the reality is what draws us together is not our sameness. What draws us together is Jesus. You know, he, He's the reason we're here. His Word is the reason why we gather. And yet we are distinct and different and unique. We're not like a cult. I, I, as a kid, I remember going to a youth rally and there was a church that I won't name, but a church showed up of a bunch of teenagers and they piled out of these three white vans and they all looked the same and they all walked the same and they all acted the same and they all spoke the same. And I was sitting there going, this is a cult. And they were part of the cult. Why they were at my youth rally, I don't know. They heard about us and showed up. I think they came to evangelize us. But I saw that and I thought, that is, that is not the way we're supposed to be as Christians. We don't share all the same lingo and attitude and behavior. It's not precise like that. We're a fellowship. We're unique. But then Paul says, yeah, but I want you to have the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, so what is the one purpose? We could give a bunch of answers. I got some good ones there. Love God, love man, glorify God. I'll tell you what it all comes down to is very simply this. Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's it. Living Christ. One pur- Not five purposes. You know, with all due respect to Rick Warren, I know he said there are five purposes for the church, I would say, oh, contraire, there's one. And it is to live Christ. And it's to live Christ to such a degree that if I'm living, it is for Him. And if I die, it's for Him. And the rest is no big deal. It is living Christ. Now you can say, yeah, but the five purposes of the church. Well, you know, good for the five purposes. You can learn to live Christ through discipleship and fellowship and worship and evangelism. And I forget what the fifth one is. But you can do all that. But that's not the deal. It's one purpose. Intent, Paul says, on one purpose. And that is living Christ. And I shared on Wednesday night, that is why you exist. 
believe it or not, accept it or not, you are here on this planet. I am here in existence for one reason alone, and that is to know Jesus Christ. And once I do, to tell other people about knowing Jesus Christ, live Christ. That's it. It is not your job. It is not your marriage. It's not your relationships. It's not your successes. It's not your future goals. It's not all of your plans. You have one purpose for being here, and that is to live Christ. We're here to learn that, to figure that out, to understand that, to share it. But that is the one purpose. And it's why I call it the key verse of this chapter, of this letter. I think it's the key verse of the entire Bible, that we live Christ. And then he goes on and says... Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is living Christ. Because that's what Christ did. That's how Jesus lived His life on this earth. And I'm not idealizing Him in saying so. Read the Gospels. Look at the history. Pause for a moment this morning and ask yourself about the historical impact of one life lived. And that for 32 to 33 years. Is there anyone named in history who impacted history more profoundly than Jesus? I mean, throw out some names. I, I, can, I can show you. There's, there, they won't even compare. You can't even put them in the same category. There was never, nor has there ever been, anyone like Jesus. Who else split history? B.C. and A.D. It's all because of Him. Now people have tried to change it to before the common era. and No, B.C. before Christ. A.D. Anno Domini. The year of our Lord Jesus did that. B.C. is not before Confucius. You know, it's not BB, before Buddha, and then, you know, ALP, after Lotus Position, before Christ, Anno Domini. It's not before Mohammed, that'd be BM, and that's a totally different conversation. Now we're back to Splatna. Before Christ. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and then it's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Nobody else is like Jesus. Nobody else lived like Jesus. And by the way, who else was about everyone else but Jesus Christ? No one else lived that way. Put everyone else above themselves. Did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarded everyone else as more important than himself. This is Jesus who did not look out for his own personal interests, but for the interests of others. That's Jesus. You want to live Christ? Live like that. Do that. Be that way. For Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for the many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. There's just no one in history like Jesus. Do you agree with that? And if you don't, please look at Him. Thank you for the whoop. Praise God. There's no one like Him. So then, how is it possible for a group of people, 
especially when facing such staunch opposition as sometimes Christians have to face, how is it possible for us to live Christ when there's no one like Him? When there's no one who even approaches the person of Jesus in terms of character and nature and behavior, how can I be like that? Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now before we get to that attitude, back in 1928, a German New Testament scholar came along, his name was Ernst Lohmeyer, and he wrote a seminal work entitled Kyrios Jesus, entitled Kyrios Jesus, Lord Christ. And in this work, he went on to describe and explain what he believed, that is that Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, was an early Christian hymn, and that Paul borrowed off that hymn and wrote it into Philippians chapter 2 as we have it today. Or that perhaps Paul wrote the hymn himself, but Lohmeyer actually believed that, that Paul didn't. He just borrowed this and stuck it in there. I doubt it. In fact, I think he's completely wrong. What's sad to me is that most scholars in the last hundred years have followed that perspective. You may even have heard preaching on the verses between verse 6 and verse 11 and heard people say, it's a hymn, it's it's a Christ hymn. Hey, there are Christ Christ hymns in the Scriptures. Paul wrote some. We saw one in Colossians chapter 1, the Christ hymn. This is not a Christ hymn. For one thing, it doesn't even read like a hymn. I mean, it's beautiful, it's profound, it's poetic, but it is not hymn-like. In fact, the structure of it doesn't approach any hymn ever written in history. It doesn't even read like a song. If you look at it in the Greek, there's no rhyme scheme, there's no structure to it like that. It's just an incredible, phenomenal, I think, most important statement about the Incarnation ever made. The Incarnation? That's not ice cream. The incarnation means divinity becoming man. And it is a picture of this. Now there are other statements of the incarnation throughout the Bible. Of God become man. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Christians, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This child is going to be born in a miraculous way and will be called God with us. Incarnation. Isaiah further describes this in Isaiah 9 verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are the names of Jesus. This is what he is called in his incarnation. But for all of that, the reason I say that Paul's statement about to be read here by us, the reason I say it is so far beyond everything else ever written is because in this, in his explanation of the incarnation, the thing that is so magnificent is the humility. It is the humble attitude of Jesus. And as we go through, think about this. Paul said, have this attitude. Have this mindset in yourselves. Verse 6. Who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, number one, note this. I'll give you four things to jot down. First off, that Jesus came from exaltation. 
He came from the most highly exalted place. Jesus as God became man in the flesh. That is, He who was God became man. And Paul now divides this verse to explain this with two awesome realities. The first being that He existed in the form of God. So grasp that just for a moment if you can. This is the pre-existence of Jesus. Before walking on the earth, He existed in the form of God. The word form is morphe in the Greek, and we do not have a good English equivalent. We say, well, you know, to morph, to change into something else, to become... No, that's not a good equivalent of the Greek word. In fact, it was Vincent who said form is an inadequate word, but our, but our language affords no better word, so I'm going to use it with italics, he says. I'll put quotes around it. That though he, was, he existed in form of God. So the word is morphe, but morphe literally to a Greek person means the nature or character, the, the essence of a person. Who a person really and truly is. So to say that He existed in the form of God is to say Jesus was God. Unquestionably, unquestionably, He was God. Isaiah 57.15, you can hear Him speaking, you can see Him uh, explained. For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is the exalted one who came from exaltation. In the beginning, John says, was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you study the Bible, you know this. I guess to a degree we all accept God made man, Jesus. Okay, I get it. There's so much to this that we don't understand. I am continually amazed as I study and learn and understand what this incarnation is really all about. God made man. He existed in the form of God. He is the radiance, Hebrews 1.3, of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. He's God. So if you ask me, Rick, tell me about the nature of Jesus, I have to begin right there. He's God. Which also means He's love because God is love, right? So if God is love and Jesus is God, Jesus is love. You see how it flows. He is God. And the Bible is absolutely relentless with this picture, this understanding, this explanation of the prehistory of Jesus. He existed in the form of God and yet, and yet, unbelievably, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's where this whole thing gets stunning. This is what Isaiah didn't tell us. This is what now Paul reveals to us by the Spirit. Now, this is a tough sentence to translate. If you're reading in a King James translation Bible, you'll read it a little differently. Let me read both to you. Here in the NASB, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But if you read it in the King James, it says, who, being in form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, that's different. You know, the one is Jesus saying, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to accept 
this exaltedness. I'm not gonna, I don't consider equality with God something that I can hold on to, so I'm, I'm letting go of that. But then in the King James, it's, hey, he didn't think it was robbery to be equal to God. Because he is God. Now, both are true. Please understand that. Both are accurate. But this, this word that is translated robbery in the King James Version is translated a thing to be grasped in the New American Standard Bible. The word is harpagmos. Harpagmos means to seize upon, to plunder, to hold on to something. And so, I think in the context, though the King James isn't necessarily wrong in the statement, that throughout his life and ministry, Jesus did equate himself with God. It's why they killed him. But Paul is probably more accurately quoted in the New American Standard Bible here because of the context. Because what Paul is talking about is the attitude of Jesus, which is a deeply humble attitude. That he came, though he was in person God, he did not plunder, he did not grasp, he did not cling to that reality. He became fully man. So when he was born on the earth, Jesus was fully man. Now note this, still fully God. Because you don't give up your essence. You don't deny your nature, your character, who you truly are. Jesus, being God, put on flesh, was still God. But He was fully man. He came from exaltation, and watch this verse 7, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He came from exaltation. He chose deprivation. Deprivation, that's what the word means. He emptied himself. Emptied, it's kanoo. Kanoo means to deprive oneself of something, to empty yourself of something. And so when in the carnation, Jesus, who was the exalted God, put on flesh to dwell among us, rather than brandishing all the power, all the might, all the glory of the Creator, Jesus chose the clothing of the created. Rather than come riding in on a flaming chariot with royal robes flowing behind Him, no, the divine donned the dust. The distance from His exaltedness to His humanity, it's not even trackable, gang, how far He came to go from God to man. But it's more than just clothing. It's more than just that God put on flesh. It's that Jesus emptied Himself out. Of what? Of His divinity? No. Of His godly nature? No. Like I said, you can't empty yourself of who you are. I cannot cease to be Rick. My body can die. My mind can get all messed up. But I cannot cease to be who I am. God does not cease to be God simply because He puts on flesh. So He didn't empty Himself of His Godness. So what did He empty Himself as? of? Listen, get this. His power. He emptied Himself of His power. Still God, but laying all power aside. So that when He was born in that manger, He was fully man. In terms of power, ability, strength... He was a weak, swaddled little baby. He grew up a little boy. He became a teenager. He dealt with any and everything you and I have ever dealt with in terms of our humanity. 
I remember reading one time an old Max Lucado book where he said a woman was upset with him because he said Jesus might have had zits. And she thought that was crude and, and inappropriate. And he said, you know, we better hope that he could have. If he was really man, if he was truly human, we better hope that he could have gone through and experienced any and everything that we do. And he did. He gave up his power. Why? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, since the children, that is humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me ask you this question. How did Jesus conquer the power of death? Through powerlessness. How did he conquer death? By being powerful? He said, I could have called 12,000 angels to come to my side. I could have done that. I could have relied on the power, but he didn't. He remained completely powerless unto his death on the cross, and that's how he conquered death. And the devil did not see that one coming. Nobody did. And the implications of this for you and for me are absolutely stunning. The implications of what? It's called the kenosis doctrine. The doctrine of Jesus emptying Himself of that power. Still fully God. Understand that. Still, in essence, God. But made man and emptied of His power completely. When He was, as I said, born in Bethlehem, He was just like us. Which begs a very interesting question. If he was emptied of his power, how did he walk on the water? If Jesus was emptied of his power, how did he heal the lame and, and, and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf? How did Jesus raise the dead? How did he feed 5,000 people if emptied of his power? And my answer to you is very simply, not of his power. Not by his power, buckle up. Because suddenly some things start to make sense. That Jesus emptied Himself of His power. Now I understand Him a little better when He says in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Except, if it's something He sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I can't do it on my own, He says. Why not, Jesus? Because He emptied Himself. Because literally emptied of His power, you might call it His divine aptitude or His godly capacity or abilities. Listen, Jesus did no miracle until after He came up dripping wet out of the Jordan River. You know that. He he, he didn't do any miracles as a child, as a teenager, as a carpenter in Nazareth. He didn't magically, you know, make the desk finish itself. It was like Mary Poppins, you know, cleaning up the nursery. Jesus didn't do a single miracle until after his baptism. Well, how do you know that? I read somewhere in one of those, you know, uh, extra books 
that he was there with his friends and they were all making pigeons out of clay, but Jesus' pigeons flew away. That's lame. It didn't happen. Well, how do you know? Because John tells us in John chapter 2, this first of his miracles he did at Cana of Galilee. The changing water to wine, that was the first miracle that Jesus performed. Prior to that, no miracles, no power was seen flowing in Jesus. In fact, everybody was shocked and surprised that this guy is claiming to be Messiah because he hadn't seen anything. He hadn't done anything until his baptism. Why? Because he emptied himself of his power. What happened at his baptism? Matthew 3.16 After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Here comes the power. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 Afterward, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And Luke tells us after that, chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He emptied Himself of His power, but at His baptism, now the Spirit comes upon Him and Jesus is filled with the power and that is the power by which He performed miracles. That is the power by which he walked on the water. You might say, eh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, okay, I get that, but I, I always thought it was just because it was God. You ever given that answer? How was Jesus able to feed the 5,000? Well, of course he could feed the 5,000. He's God. Yeah, he's God emptied of his power. It would have been impossible for Jesus to do that without the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon Him. He functioned by the power of the Spirit. John testified saying, John 1.32, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining upon Him. Remaining upon Him. Jesus filled with the Spirit at His baptism. Now, let me, let me try and clarify just a little bit more. Jesus was already filled with the Spirit because the Spirit is Him. Right? I mean, you're tracking with me? He was in the form of God. He had the essence. He was essentially God. So the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. So walking around as a man, God's Spirit was there. That's who Jesus is. But the power of the Spirit came upon Him at His baptism. And suddenly now, Jesus is changing water to wine. He's causing a lame man to stand up and walk. He is able to give sight to the blind. He's causing the deaf and the dumb to speak and to hear. He's raising the dead. All after His baptism, all by the power of the Spirit. And this is where His truth hits our reality. Listen, John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. Okay, Rick, you are out on a limb. I know where you're going with this. You're trying to tell me that because Jesus could give sight to the blind, so can a human being who is under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I'm telling you. You're telling me that that because Jesus brought the deaf hearing... 
That by the power of the Holy Spirit, any human being could do that? That's exactly what I'm saying. You're saying that someone could raise the dead if they simply had the power of the Holy Spirit upon them? That is exactly what I'm telling you. That's what Jesus said. All these things you see in me, greater things will you do. Because I go to the Father. Jesus did these things by... Okay, wait, 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 wait. So what you're saying then is that all these power, miraculous, supernatural things, walking on water, I could do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Whoa. When have we ever seen an example of that? Um, Peter, who walked on water. Oh, no, he didn't. He sank. Yeah, after he walked. Read the story. He came out to Jesus, eyes on Jesus, focused on Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit on Jesus, was able to walk on the water at least two or three steps before he looked at the waves and went down. Jesus said, you're going to do greater works than these? Peter raised the dead. Peter gave sight to the blind. Peter caused the deaf to hear. Peter was just like you. With the Holy Spirit. So that if you have the Holy Spirit, you could do what Peter did, which is what Jesus did. What about Paul? Paul had the Holy Spirit. What did Paul do? He raised the dead, he gave sight to the blind, he healed the lame, he cast out demons. Others did the same thing. What was different between them and you? Well, they were first century. I really hate that argument. Because saying that all the power stuff that we see in the book of Acts is limited to the first century is to say God is limited. And He is not. This power comes of the same Lord, the same Spirit that Paul said, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8.11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And that power is available by the Holy Spirit to anyone who will keep their eyes on Jesus. Now, I'm going to encourage you not to go out to Bowman's Bay for a little stroll today on the water. But this is, I believe, biblical reality. But I want you to understand this. Back to the passage, greater than walking on water. Greater than the performance of supernatural miracles as Jesus did. Greater even than raising the dead is what Jesus accomplished in His powerlessness on the cross. That that was the profound moment of Jesus' life when He conquered sin and death and Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. Which is not the attitude that says, dude, we are going to go out to Bowman's Bay today and have us some fun. Because we're going to walk in the Spirit out on the water. It's going to be great. And then we're going to go find a deaf guy and see what we can do with him. (laughs) Then we're going to go to the graveyard. See, it's, just, it's, it's completely, and I'm, I'm, I'm joking around with this, but, but my friends, there are an awful lot of Christians who start to hear about the power gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit can do in us, and they start to get really hyper about gifts and miracles and healings. Fine. 
If God is doing that through and in a person, wonderful. He has the power to, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe anyone sitting here today could do any of those things, but they're not the point. To truly live Christ is to have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. That's what we are called to imitate. That is the pattern that we are called to follow. Have this attitude in yourselves. And what's marvelous about this, and what to me is is greater than all the supernatural combined, is the very simple fact that the example we see in Jesus Christ can be modeled in your life and mine. What? That we can be Christ-like. By the power of His Spirit. That that's not something elusive. That's not something that's just uh, maybe one day. That is right now, I can live the Christ life. I can be Christ-like. I can live Christ. By the power of the same Spirit who does all these other things, I can imitate Jesus. Verse 8, who being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So He came from exaltation, He chose deprivation, and He clothed Himself with humiliation. In Rome, it was the most humiliating thing that could ever happen to anyone. Execution by crucifixion was the bottom rung. You could not go any lower than that. Think about how far Jesus came from the cosmos to arrive at the cross. You think the distance between the divine and the human was great? How about the divine all the way down to the cross itself? Have this attitude, which is in Christ Jesus. For Paul to tout this truth in Philippi, for him to send this letter talking about Jesus coming from exaltation all the way down to the humiliation of the cross was absolutely radical because in the Roman mind, death on the cross was the lowest form of humiliation. To be nailed to a cross for a Roman to look at that would say that's a disgrace, it's shame, it's despicable, it's pathetic, it's weak, it's ridiculous. And here comes Paul talking about a God who went to the cross. What kind of God is that? The Greek would say Zeus. Zeus, he's our God. You know, the Roman would call Jupiter. God of war, yeah. Power, strength, that's, that's a God. And here comes Paul saying, My God hung on a cross. What? That's ridiculous. Why would someone believe something like that? It's pathetic, it's sick, it's weak. And Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. By the way, uh, Paul wasn't like, maybe we should change up the message for the culture. You know, because in Roman culture, God on a cross, that's pretty intense. That's, that's hard to swallow. Maybe we ought to alter it a little bit so that that's not what we say, so that we can kind of bathe and switch them into Christianity. You don't think that any churches ever do that, do you? <laughs> Let's not change up the message for the culture. 
The culture needs this message. And by the way, it's the only one we've got. If you're a follower of Jesus, your message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. There is no other message. And that is the truth that will save a life. The humiliation of the cross. That's our message. Have this attitude in yourselves. Jesus chose it. He clothed Himself with it. He set the pattern for us. And so I say to you this morning that by the same power that Jesus functioned with, having emptied Himself of His power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have this attitude. We can share this mindset by His Spirit. I can suppress selfishness. I don't do very well with that myself, but when I'm alert to, aware of, and allowing His Spirit to be at work, I can suppress selfishness. I can empty myself of vain conceit. I can actually start to look out for the interests of others, regardless of how that affects me, what that does to me personally, by the encouragement of Christ, the consolation of the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and the compassion I know in the church, and by the power poured out of His Holy Spirit, I can be Christ-like. Have this attitude among yourselves. The attitude of utter humiliation. Talking with Donna after second service, and I I had prayed, God, would you do whatever it takes to humble us? And she said, she said, I understand that we need to choose to humble ourselves, but I wonder about that. Asking God to humble me? And and, and as we talked about it, what we both were realizing is that we, we struggle with the idea that a loving father might humiliate us. And God is not a humiliator. And yet, yet, I do pray, God, humiliate me. I need His Spirit to keep me in a place that will teach me to be humble. Because, and those of you who know me well know, that's not easy for Rick. Humility does not come naturally to this man. I need the Spirit to do that. I need power beyond me to be a humble person. Because otherwise, left to my own devices, trust me, I would destroy this church. (laughs) Verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Kyrios, to the glory of God the Father, the Lordship of Christ. He is Lord. He is the only Lord. And what this tells us is number four, Jesus was caught up in exaltation. He began in exaltation. Jesus chose deprivation. He clothed Himself with humiliation. And now, now because of all that, He's caught up in exaltation again. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Back where he began, right where he started from. And listen, get this, Jesus set the pattern for us to follow. Meaning what? Luke 14.11, he said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
James quoted it again, James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Jesus ends up the exalted one because He didn't grasp or plunder or cling to His original position. Though He was informed God, He didn't cling to that. He let go of that. He emptied Himself from it. He was then highly exalted by God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. When's the proper time? When I just get humble enough? Hey, the proper time is very simply when you too are caught up. When you are exalted. That's the pro- Humble yourself until then. Till the moment, what are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, when we are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the proper time of our exaltation. That is the time where suddenly we begin to experience something of the glory of God. It's all His glory, but it kind of gets all over us. As we are caught up to be with Him, and I didn't tell you this earlier, but the word grasp, harpagmos, does it sound familiar? It should. The root word of grasp, harpagmos, is harpazo, to be caught up. It is that word that that means we will be seized by God, caught up by God. And what's marvelous is because Jesus refused to grasp that position, He now is able to grasp us and pull us out at the proper time. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Jesus set the pattern. Have this attitude. Deprive yourself of power, of rights, of authority, of privilege. Man, we are drilled with that in this culture, aren't we? Deprive yourself of your rights. Deprive yourself of privilege. Deprive yourself of position. Have this attitude among you, which was in Christ Jesus. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. For Paul says to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And nothing else matters. There is joy in granted suffering. There is comfort and grace in good grief given by God Himself, and ultimately at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why wait? That day is coming. That day is coming when in the presence of Jesus Christ, every single person, believer or not, will bow. Every tongue will confess the Lordship of Christ because there will be no denying it. We will be in His presence. Every last person in all history will be in His presence and we will go to our knees. Some will go to their knees because they chose to go to their knees before. Some will confess Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father wonderfully, joyfully because we've confessed it before. Because this is our confession. Some will confess it because the reality is too great. Because they can confess nothing else. Why wait? Confess Jesus now. Bow before Him 
today that you may live Christ and know complete joy. Father, help us to have this attitude in us which was in Christ Jesus. To be humbled before you. I pray this for my brothers and sisters. Oh Lord, we share the encouragement of Christ. We share the consolation of the Father's love. We share the fellowship of the Spirit right here. And we do have affection and compassion for each other. That's in this place, Lord. But I pray with that deep affection that You will humble us all. That You will do whatever it takes to keep us humble before You. Speaking very simply the very humble message of the cross of Jesus Christ. That one day, Father, we might be lifted up to be with You forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have any response to Jesus, you want to pray, you want to say thank you to Him, or if you want to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, you want to get baptized, we've been having a slew of those lately. If you want to go into the water today, whatever your need, whatever your desire, Come to the Lord this morning. Let's stand and sing together. You can go to any one of the four tables and we'll be there to pray with you. Let's stand together.